welcome back to Beats, Rye, and Types. This is episode, another episode. <laughs> We're joined today uh, by our good friend Greg Borenstein, who we've uh, known for a while and is uh, doing some awesome stuff in a number of awesome fields, so we're excited to have him on. He just chose a song by uh, Brian Eno and uh, which Hyde is it, I guess? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Carl, 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 I think. Carl Hyde? All right. Called Daddy's Car. Uh, so why'd you pick that track, Greg? Um, it's, it's, I, in the last uh, couple months while working on my thesis, I like grabbed a bunch of new music to listen to. And that was one of the ones that like really stuck with me that I found myself like just listening on loop. Like sometimes when I'm like in a late phase of a project, I like can't change the song or it'll like everything kind of falls apart. So I've probably listened to that song like 500 times in the last <laughs> month. And it's just something about it like it has an intensity, but also like isn't distracting, which is like a, an interesting combination um, that's like pretty rare. And it's a thing that Eno is like kind of has a magic touch with, I think. As you mentioned, you were working on a thesis. So today, we we thought we would it would be interesting to talk about research and research's role in computology and possibly food to maybe music. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see where the day takes us. Yeah, I think it apply. I think it really applies to all three of your topics for sure. So why don't you uh, just give us like a brief description of your thesis and you know what you've been researching and what your work has been about for the past couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm just finishing a master's degree at MIT at the Media Lab, which is an interdisciplinary um, school of engineers and media people and artists and uh, kind of working in all different fields. Like the Media Lab's famous for a bunch of early work that uh, that helped invent the CD and the accelerometer and e-ink and stuff like that. And but the the process is really interesting because instead of just setting traditional engineering problems, they tend to like like the the accelerometer was invented for an interactive music music project where they were trying to measure Yo-Yo Ma's elbow so he could control the sound of a cello. And like trying to solve that problem, they invented the accelerometer. This idea of applying engineering and technology to creative pursuits and to human expression and and to just all parts of human uh, human life more broadly. So what what was your what was your project? So I'm 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 in a group here called Playful Systems um, which does stuff with games. So my thesis was about, it was called The Future of Tabletop Games. So it's about like integrating digital devices into board games. So you can bring some of what video games do in board games. And I ended up coming here kind of after, it's at the end of like a long road for me that um, started uh, when I went to, I did an earlier uh, master's degree, but it really came from like, for a long time, I like, I played music and I made art stuff. And then like, I had become a software engineer kind of like by accident through doing that stuff, like through learning about music, like learning about how to put music on the internet and share music on the internet through people. Like that question kind of like gradually led me into being a software developer after like many years of, of you know, painstaking self-teaching and learning from other people. And so I always had these kind of separate sides of like art on the one hand and technology on the other side. And then I discovered that like, oh, it's possible to combine those things. It's possible to like make interactive media art and to, you know, do, to do, to use technology as a medium for making cultural stuff. And that road led me to go back to grad school. And that is kind of like the process that set me towards where I am now. The, and I think that's actually where like, 
this question of research comes in for me too, is like the connection between those two things. Between art and computers or art and science, basically? Yeah, yeah. For me, it was like, oh, there's these creative tools, right? There's like, you know, Photoshop or After Effects or, you know, music, music generation stuff. If you're a creative person working on computers, like your creative options are like pick a menu item from this and apply that filter or whatever. And then like as I learned about like the computation side of that, I realized like, oh wait, that filter in Photoshop is this research paper. Content to wear fill is like this seam carving thing that was like research, like before it was in Photoshop. If you really wanna be like an artist who like makes your own tools or like does something like that's not just an option available to anyone else, you have to like actually learn about that that research. And like that was the the kind of sudden realization that like led me to like all of a sudden find myself like reading SIGGRAPH papers and like needing to like learn math, which I like totally suck at <laughs> utterly. Yeah, that's interesting because a lot of people view art or when they think about art they think about this very abstract, very open-ended creative process that is all about like kind of just inspiration and letting the moment take you or whatever whatever you want to describe it. Most people, when they think of like the artist, they think of Picasso or something, you know, sitting in a room smoking cigarettes, like just, you know, dashing paint against a canvas without any reference of na- the natural world or whatever it is. And... When you think about science or computology, you often think of it coming from the opposite direction, which is, you know, you scientific method having to like actually prove something and and think through it and uh, take the steps like like a repeatable set of steps to get to somewhere. And it seems like those things are sort of at odds or just not they don't tend to overlap as much. So maybe the intersection where those things do overlap is, is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's like, it started with like, Oh, I have this thing I can see in my head. I want to make something that like looks like this or, or does this. So like, how do I do that? And so like the first steps of that lead towards like the same way, like anybody learns programming, right? You like, you like Google, like how do you make a thing do a thing? And like eventually many hours of frustration later, you know how to program and you're like doing a thing. But then if like, nobody's quite done the thing that you want to do or you don't know the name of the thing, you end up like, oh, okay, so the only people doing, making this thing look this way are, you know, in, in this, like, more research field. So, like, now you're like, okay, you got to survey, like, all these papers to see, like, has anyone, like, what what is the, the field for, like, distorting images this way or, like, you know, making this interactive graphics thing and then, like, um, you know, you you gain more tools and you can make things, like, you, and it's all in pursuit of that like crazy thing that you like when you were just seeing this picture you've got in your head and you like just want to get out and like if none of the tools that you have available you know as prepackaged things will do that for you then it like sends you or sent me down this road needing to dig into the research that under under underlied it and stuff. So what else did you what else did you learn in the process of like so you sort of had an epiphany where you realized that it was going to be necessary f- for you to do research uh, in order to like you know make good art with a computer or whatever it is or make make culture with technology however you want to say it so like did you know how to research already or did you did you have to learn no totally not at all like I still feel like yeah, I still feel like I struggle with that in a lot of ways you know the first thing I started like where everybody else starts of like just randomly looking at you know searching on things on the internet and like following it through and then like finding good books and stuff like that. But then eventually, like, I found 
I, I had really great mentors and I was really lucky to have like, like Kyle McDonald, who's a, who's like a, an art, an art, a technology artist who, who taught the class I took at, at NYU. Like he really is fearless about like, oh yeah, there's this new like face tracking algorithm, like, and like, just figure it out, read the paper and just keep doing it until you understand it and stuff like that. That process of like, okay, first of all, like, it's about knowing the name of the thing. You eventually, at some point, by flailing around or by talking to somebody who knows the domain, you connect, like, oh, this thing you want to do, that thing you're seeing in your head, that's called seam carving. Or, like, that's called pathfinding. And then now you have this term, and, like, that term, through Google, lets you, like, survey the research that's been done out there, right? So you, like, flail around and collect a bunch of papers and look in the references in the papers, and then you kind of have this, like, high level view of all this stuff to know. And like that part can be really crippling because it's like, oh God, like all this knowledge is connected. And if I want to know about pathfinding, I need to know about graph algorithms. I need to know about union find and like set theory. And like, it can be like a yak shave that takes you down forever and makes you just feel tiny. Like you don't know anything at all. And so the other, the other thing that's like really hard to learn is like, okay, is one of these things exactly what you're looking for? And you can kind of stop. And like that, that's one form of research where it's about like, okay, you actually found the technique that you're going to use. Like, that's not research in a way that, like, MIT researcher would acknowledge it, right? You're not, like, adding new knowledge to the world. You're just finding a way that to do something that someone else already discovered and applying it to the end goal that you want to do. You know, and I think that's, like, that's a process that's probably most familiar to, like, my life as a programmer from before going, doing anything with academia, like, that's the same as, like, oh, I found the blog post that explains how to do this thing. Just the thing that it explains is a little bit more abstract and, like, s set down in this language of math, math and algorithms that's, like, not about your domain of your problem. It's, like, meant to be for lots of people, which means, or for very narrow specialists in their field, which means that it's, like, kind of, like, arcane and, like, way harder to read. So, sort of, uh, for some context, before we before we started recording, Greg mentioned that he had came and given a talk at Paperless Post where Aaron and I were both working. Um, this is probably, uh, this was a long time ago already. I don't remember when it was. What, what year was that? 11, 11 probably, yeah, 2011. So Aaron and I curated a, a series of tech talks at our office and people would come after hours and give a talk. Um, we would invite people and give them pizza and soda and beer and stuff and it was really fun. And Greg came and spoke. I recall you being really fired up about this idea that, you know, it was obvious that people uh, can get a lot out of accessing abstract ideas like mathematics, uh, but that uh, methods by which they are sort of ordained to understand those facts are like really, really out of reach for a typical individual, right? And so you were proposing... Uh, it seemed to me like you, you, uh, like you were proposing. Well, maybe, you, maybe you should clear, clarify because you probably recall a lot better than I do since it was you. But my question is essentially that uh, you, you had some sort of stated like attitudes about uh, how people, what the accessibility of math and science and people's ability or desire to acquire that kind of information, and, and then you kind of went through a process where you learned a lot about research. Uh, and like you, uh, another thing you mentioned is that you ended up taking a math class. So. Having gone through it yourself, has have your attitudes about those uh, things changed? Yeah, so I think like the frustration that I was expressing was this kind of t thing that comes out of as you look into research. Like obviously, the fields become more specialized, right? 
like the difference between like, oh, this is a general purpose programming language and it's a tutorial for anyone down to like, this is a, a field of math that like there's a relatively small number of practitioners and they have very specific precise notation that they use that you have to learn in order to understand anything they say. And like, you know, as you know, that's true if you just do like computer science, but then as you get into any subspecialty, those notations get ever more arcane and fewer and fewer people know them and it takes longer and longer to learn them and get up to speed. There's also this attitude oftentimes because arcane notation and like difficult to understand writing is very common in very specific fields that gets associated with being good. If you're an expert, you write in a way that no one understands. And that's good, basically. That's a sign of how smart or, as, or expert you are. And, like, I think that is so messed up. Absolutely. I, I think I've come, as I've, like, spent more time, like, learning these fields and, like, get, I understand, like, why precision is, is needed in certain ways. It's, like, to really, like, articulate a problem and solve it. Like, it's really important to be precise, obviously. There's a big difference between being uh, precise and being, like, arcane or impenetrable for its own sake. The humanities get so much... Uh, crap for like bad writing that's full of jargon and like sounds like you know postmodern word salad but like the math and the sciences do that too like they totally have the same kind of arcane professional jargon like so it's really hard to like as I've learned more about it I've learned to see the difference between like a well-written paper like will totally have you know notation and stuff but it will have as little of that as possible and it will be well written it will be like really clear to read it like if you as long as you have like basically the right prerequisites and a lot of that problem is bad writing and just bad communication. I remember the other aspect of your talk that you gave that really stuck with me was this idea kind of that there is a ton of stuff going on in academia and in research that just takes an unreasonable amount of time to actually get to practical use, like that there's that there's the fields of academia and the actual people who are doing the work of computology day to day, day to day and like actually building fucking websites or whatever <laughs> right. um, are just so disconnected that probably the classic example that, that comes up a lot in the web these days is like all of Leslie Lamport's research is from like the late seventies, early eighties. Right. And it's just now, I mean, there have been ideas of his applied over time, obviously, but we're like really just digging in as a community to these, to this research now, which is just, you know, like almost 30 or 40 years later in some cases. And it's kind of crazy that that distance exists. And you had, you had talked about ideas around maybe figuring out ways to shorten that distance and connecting academics and, and practitioners too. Yeah, totally. And, and the way you said it is exactly how I think of it. It's like, there's kind of two, we talked about the like teaching, the like communication and like good writing part of it, which is a big part of it. But then also it's like a social problem where like these groups of people don't talk to each other. And so having more like social circulation between those two of like, you know, and the interesting thing is that in the last, I think maybe since, since I said that, in my specific, the fields like related to what I do, like being like machine learning and like artificial intelligence research stuff, there has been a huge uh, interaction between academia and industry. But that interaction has been Facebook and Google hiring all of the researchers <laughs> out of academia in this like this specific hot area in machine learning called called deep learning. Like there's been a bunch of breakthroughs, and then like 
tons of researchers just vanish out of academia into into industry and like there's actually you know some to some extent that's meant like a, a break like that all of a sudden their work stops being as published as frequently and it like goes into proprietary tools in those companies but um but also actually like you know that's happened less i think in this wave than it has in the past of these kind of industry adoption of research like i think because of the culture of those researchers and like how fast that field is moving they really just want to publish so both facebook and google have actually done a lot like a lot of great publishing in those areas is like some of the best work and published work is you know papers published by google research and by like facebook's research wing and I think that's like that's becoming for them like a competitive thing where it's like to get the best researchers, you can't like just lock them up in a room and like not let them share their work with the public in the way that like maybe like IBM could in the 70s or whatever. You know, Microsoft has had that right for a long time, actually, right? Because they've had amazing graphics research going back years that they've been publishing on participating in SIGGRAPH and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, totally. I followed a sort of similar route to you, but like I have a, I did an MFA at Parsons uh, in their design and technology program, and Golan Levin was the uh, my <clears throat> Golan Levin was like the first like teacher of mine there, and and was a big inspiration to me and my thesis advisor and all this other stuff, and he came from the media lab, so he preached a lot of those attitudes um, and he's similarly uh, kind of a fearless individual when it comes to uh, not letting like the fact that there's no actual industrial implementation of a thing uh, get in the way of him designing something or, or realizing the vision that he had in his head. But it's funny because uh, when I, so that's, you know, that's pretty much when I learned uh, how to do research, like for real. Uh, and I published a thesis and, you know, had to have something novel in it and all that. When I did it, it was Google Scholar wasn't a thing. And there, it's funny how like in 10 years, uh, there's probably 10 years between when I finished my degree and when you finished yours, a little bit more, actually 11. Our ability to access information has changed like pretty significantly. It's kind of amazing. Like when I was doing it, I felt felt like, man, this is amazing. Like everything's at my fingertips and all this stuff. But like, it wasn't really true, right? Uh, to the extent that it is now, there were no major easily accessible with decent user. You couldn't like wake up in the middle of the night with some idea and like poke Google Scholar to show you like the tree of citations for whatever you were looking for, right? So there was still a little bit of delayed gratification there, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It just, I thought it was something that was interesting to point out because I was thinking about how uh, different it would be if I were to go back and like do another, do another degree, do some more research in some other field, how qualitatively, uh, how that qualitative difference might have some quantitative impact on my ability to like do good work. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like one of the topics I was thinking a lot about when thinking about having this conversation is like, so one of the downsides to that, having everything at your fingertips, is like you can just like spend your rest of your life on Google Scholar, like navigating the whole graph of knowledge and citations and like making this endless list of papers you need to read before you can do anything. And then you just like you read a tenth of them and then you're 80 years old and like time ran out, right? <laughs> yeah. And like I actually think that's like one of the deep questions about research, both at like an academic level and in, you know, other pursuits of like, there's two aspects of research. One is like understanding the breadth and depth of a, of a field of like what other people before you have like learned and figured out. And like, 
And then there's like, as you kind of find the edges of that, you know, that can be, so that can be very paralyzing, right? Because it can feel like everything's already been done or like I have to read everything before I can even have my own ideas. But then like, as you become a little more experienced, you learn that like, oh, actually like my problem as I'm interested in it is always like not quite what anybody's done before. There's always going to be a way that I need, I both can and need to like take some amount of the knowledge that's out there and like incrementally add to it in my specific circumstance or problem. And like, like Aaron, you mentioned that like Picasso, that like romantic vision of art that we have of like Picasso sitting in a room, you know, and like just coming up with something. And I I think we have a similar romantic vision of science and, and research of like Einstein or somebody just like, you're only a real researcher if you're like, thinking about the nature of the universe and like the deepest, <laughs> most like applicable problems that like generalize utterly. And like, and that's like, I think that's a really unhealthy because it's like research is like these two skills of like, get this breadth of, get the understanding of what other people have done and like what approaches are out there, find the gaps in those and then figure out how to like articulate what you want to add to that. Like in a really specific, coherent scientific way, like a, a small hypothesis that's testable. So you'll know if you did it right, and then doing it and like, and then sharing that, like those are the steps of research, right? That's as important in like, so a great example for me is like, um, one of the areas I did a bunch of stuff in at the media lab is called interactive machine learning. And interactive machine learning is the intersection between machine learning and uh, user experience um, and a user interaction. The idea is like, you know, machine learning algorithms are often this like black box of like, statistical complexity that like spits out an answer those answers can be like really unhelpful to users without knowing some context and so this is a whole field that tries to apply like research knowledge from from user interaction to those algorithms so like okay how do you make that make sense to a user how do you give a user an interface where they like can understand how confident the algorithm is or like how it's ranking different options or whatever it is. Like what are the hooks in the algorithm and then like what are the ways that human beings can understand information? They're not necessarily like inventing whole new statistical learning algorithms that are like the macho like part of machine learning. They're doing like real user research where they like put things in front of people and measure how well they can use them and then they're coming up with like really amazing stuff that is like um, making that research like have a much wider impact on more people and creating tools that let, you know, non-programmers do amazing stuff with it. You know, that's a great, amazing contribution. So, so that's, you know, I think that's, that's for me, like a lot of what I want to do in research is like finding those in-between spots and like just making those contributions, like wherever, wherever I can, you know. That kind of reminds me of, to bring it to another topic, to music, it kind of reminds me of, I mean, I don't actually know what the user interface that you're describing looks like, but it reminds me of, like, the idea of, like, Max MSP, like, the sound processor, where it's, like, here's a visual language for describing how music works, right, or how synthesizers work, and the idea is that you can, you don't actually have to understand all of the intricacies of of how uh, DSP or uh, audio work, but it's like a lot more open, and there are the hooks, right, of like in, of how you program and how you change sound versus you know having just a synthesizer that has like five hundred dials on it, and you're just changing dials. It's like you're actually hooking things up and actually seeing the sound move through this kind of processor or processor. Yeah, totally. And I think that that's actually relates more broadly to like the, the kind of like the websites and like the other stuff we build. Like, you know, we tend to like, we think of research as like this scientific thing about computers 
and like understanding how programming languages and how hardware works and stuff and what it can do. And but then like and then when we when we research what our users do, we that like feels like marketing optimization-y, you know, it's about the the um, the funnel and stuff like that. But there is so much research about how people understand interfaces and computers, you know, and like like um, very few people in UI UX use that research, like lean on their like really rich work in academic, you know, UI UX research. That's like using the same kind of scientific method that like asks structured questions. It's like, okay, you give people a few different interfaces to making, you know, to doing music, DSP and music synthesis. And you like measure how well they're, how good they are doing certain tasks. And you talk to them about like what they were thinking and like what they were struggling with. And you can, and you do that with a bunch of people and you can like figure out things about what's a good interface for that. Um, like, and you can pose those questions scientifically in the same way you can pose questions about like performance of a given programming language or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there's even research about, there's tons and tons of research about the, speaking of the funnel and user acquisition and all that kind of thing. Like even, even taking out the user user interface components, there's tons of research about, you know, the economics of, you know, how people behave and how you can understand people's economic behavior in the context of subscription-based businesses that are primarily driven by technology. And, you know, when you're not delivering a physical thing, you're delivering information or is it a service? And like, there's, you know, all of this, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research about it, which basically sets out what you can reasonably expect in terms of, you know, uh, understanding and interpreting how like groups of people behave in those kinds of contexts. And then also like how you can, how you can optimize your, you know, your, your site or whatever it is for success. And that's a funny thing because people don't, that's not something that typical people who are typically involved in the marketing AB test optimization side of things necessarily get directly involved in. But similarly, to the example that you mentioned before of the accelerometer, right? Like the fact that there are all these like A-B test apps, right? That you could just like run the idea that like a layman can execute uh, an A-B test, which is like a, actually the product of like a significant amount of statistical research and economic research is kind of amazing. I mean, I don't... It, it kind of at, it makes me wonder how much like actual science is being done and whether or not people actually understand like everything that it it seems unlikely that and this is probably something really close to what you spend time thinking about right but like how close can you really cut cut it right i mean like you can give people tools with superior interfaces and you can give you you know you can make interactive machine learning a reality but how how far can it really go and how much how much theory do people have to understand in order to be able to operate those tools right the, the gold standard is a computer which you don't have to understand how it works at all to use it and you could just use it and it doesn't matter it makes zero difference if you understand how it works right but like a machine learning algorithm i mean can you can you hope to can you hope to achieve an interface like that is that kind of a stupid question like what what do you think about that well i think I think what you want is kind of you want to have an experience where people can like you give them tools that they can use right and there's there's learning curves around tools like you know you don't need to understand like binary logic and hardware architecture to use a computer, but there is a ton of stuff you need to learn to use a modern computer, you know like in terms of user interface paradigms and 
file system metaphors and right. networking metaphors, and there's just a ton of stuff. And so, like, I think a lot of this stuff is about, like, okay, first give somebody a tool that, like, works and comes to them where they are. And then that tool should include in it a kind of on-ramp to learning more complex stuff. Like, it should unfold where, like, when you're a total beginner, it does its best to, like, let you do the thing, keep you focused on doing the thing you want to do and, like, not dump huge layers of complexity on you. But then you should, if, if that's all you can do, if all you can do is, like, click a button and get a thing that goes boom and, like, you feel good about it, like, that's not, it's a very limited tool. Like, any great tool is going to have a learning curve where you can, like, become an intermediate where you start to learn some of those concepts that are behind it and, like, increase your mastery and all the way up to being, like, an expert where you like really think a lot about how the tool works, have a full mental model that's very accurate. You're like, your mental model is no longer like a metaphor. It's actually like a pretty accurate description of how the system actually works. I think that's like just good design for any complex tool or system. Like I think about that problem a lot in making games, like games work that way. They're like, in some ways games are like the best interactive computational systems for creating that experience I'm describing. What you, what I just said is also how I want, you know, research itself and like human knowledge to be. I want us to be able to like, when there's this breakthrough in either machine learning or, you know, computer vision or whatever, to like click a menu item in Photoshop and just get a thing that looks really awesome. But I also want the next steps to be, I don't want there to be this gap like there is now. It's like now there's like, you click a menu button in Photoshop and then the next step is like, you have to like learn open frameworks by like taking a class with like Zach Lieberman <laughs> for three months. And there's like no in between, you know, that's like a huge a huge gap. And then after that, where you do learn open frameworks, you're like doing some processing or some coding, whatever, like then there's another huge gap. Like I had to go to grad school for two years at MIT to get to the other side of that gap of like actually being able to read the papers and like understand the like the research that's behind those tools. And so like for me, a lot of it is about smoothing those those holes that you can fall into. Yeah, it's definitely like a step function now. It should be. We should try to make it more continuous. And I think that's like really true in other domains too, besides computology. Like in food and, and music, I think you could talk about those. Like I feel like I'm an amateur chef, totally. Like compared to you guys, so I, like part of that is like I think I think cooking has like a similar problem, where it's like you know I for a long time I like barely cooked, and then I like got really excited about cooking for a few years, and I like learned where like I have my like solid mainstay dishes that I make, and like I have certain things I know how to do, like that are like impressive or whatever. Like I make pasta from scratch. I make moulinier or whatever. I poach a salmon. I feel now there's this gap for me of like, how do I get to like the equivalent of like research for food? Like how do I, like, I want to learn, I want to learn fish butchery because I, I, I really love fish. And like, that's like the next thing I want to learn. But that feels like totally a huge gap to me of like, how do I get into something like that? Like, and then let alone like watch, you know, seeing these amazing chefs who are like actually doing like new research, like inventing stuff. Like, I think that the same thing I was describing about, like, that can be intimidating and paralyzing. It's, like, because, like, oh, if you're not Dan Barber, then you can't, like, invent something new, you know? Like, or you're not, um, you know, uh, what's his name from El Bui, right? Like, for not, yeah, for not Audrey, right. Yeah. So, like, that's, that's something that, like, I've been interested in your guys' conversation to hear what you think about that of, like, how do you do the, that same thing for food? Like, how do you, how do you fill in that gap? How do you, as a, as a chef, like, feel like you can, like, do your own research or do your own invention? That's really funny because the way you frame the way you frame it is like I've never I've never personally experienced that like I've always kind of seen it 
the the cooking continuum is a, as a very continuous thing where I definitely see the steps like in a, the the step function and a lot of other potential pursuits. So I think one technique that I use is that I think about the fact that uh, there are there are infinite permutations of like dishes that you can prepare, things you can cook, ways you can eat, and all that kind of stuff, right? So that kind of for me opens the field up a lot like there are really no right or wrong way to do things as long as you're capable of producing something that tastes good and and additionally we all have access to a palette of food and flavor that is special to us which is like the stuff that grows around us and like the things that we have access to and also like the food memories we have and wanting to like preserve those and keep those going so between like the fact that I could go to like an, you know, an Asian market and see like 16 types of greens and herbs that I've never seen before or like experiment with spices or look something up and figure out how it's supposed to be made and try it myself. Like I've I've been able to maintain some fearless fearlessness in like culinary pursuit where it's been much more challenging for me to to keep that going in, in other areas. Right. Like. I, I think that doing like a, doing like truly new like food science, food science, right? Like like kind of like we've talked about a little bit in previous episodes. Like I'm not I'm not I'm not like rolling into the kitchen and asking like, can I make peanut butter melt or whatever the fuck it is? Right? <laughs> or like I want to make like you know I want to make like solid uh, whatever it is or like change something fundamentally, right? Uh, I don't push it like in that way, but I think that the field of possibility is so large just in like what you have in terms of everyday ingredients and techniques and you can apply them in all these different ways that that kind of shields us from those kinds of issues. And I don't have to feel like I'm doing something that someone's never done before necessarily. The way I've been thinking about it is sort of like in two, like taking two separate tracks almost at the same time and one of them is just exploring, very exploratory of like trying to cook as many different, very, not variations, as many different things as possible. Like I have, I like love collecting cookbooks. We've talked about this before, but like getting a new cookbook and just like finding the most unique recipes in it and trying to push that and just see what, what I can do with that. Something that has a unique technique or a unique like perspective or collection of spices or flavors or whatever and then trying to cook that and maybe it's good maybe it's not but just seeing what that's like you know and trying to gain experience from just doing that so like uh, an example that i think about a lot because it's such a weird technique this cookbook called burma by naomi duguid who's like one of my favorite cookbook authors she's written a series of really amazing cookbooks about lesser known Asian cuisines like Western China and Burmese food and stuff like that. And there's this recipe for pounded beef, right? And it's like the weirdest technique where like, I don't know how I would apply it to anything else. Basically like you steam this flank steak, I think it is. And then you like take a mortar and then you basically let it dry out completely and all like the, the moisture just leaves it by steaming it for a really long time and then letting it dry out. And then you pound it and turn it into like this kind of like like threaded, pounded substance that's like, a, I don't know, it's really weird. But then you add all the spices and fresh ingredients and you're like, wow, this is like 
it's like a beef salsa. It's 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 really strange, but it's delicious. And trying to figure that out and find that technique, you know, is really interesting. And then figuring out maybe someday I'll be like, oh, maybe I can take that and apply it to like making a sandwich or something like that. And then the, uh, <laughs> yeah, like a pounded beef sandwich. The gold standard. <laughs> yeah. Can I apply this to making a sandwich? Can I put this on a fucking sandwich? And then the other the other aspect is like I've been really trying to like hone in on flavor and my actual palate you know like how i'm able to taste things and that's that's a for me that's a much more challenging thing because it requires more like thought and focus it's it's gotten pretty easy for me at this point to like look at a recipe read it a couple times and then approach it and just try to do it but like making a salad dressing like a really simple vinaigrette and like just tasting it you know, without without a recipe, like, let me see if I can combine, you know, oil, vinegar, herbs, spices, mustard in a way that is flavorful and, like, I actually think is good, you know? Because salads especially are these one things where, like, it's just like, oh, I'm just going to fucking whip up a salad dressing and just throw some lettuce in a bowl and mix it up. But it's, like, trying to actually taste it and be like, is this actually good? Do I actually like this? Because a lot of times you know, we'll cook, especially things that we're like just used to, like making pasta or making like a red sauce or something like that. I'll just make it and eat it and be like, yeah, this is just as good as anything I've made before. But actually trying to push that and like figure out, am I doing this right? Am I making this better, a little better every time is is something I've been really thinking about a lot lately and focusing on. It's interesting, like in what both of you guys are saying about food really relates to my journey with research and computology is like, um, that it's like this thing where like self-improvement and like your relationship to kind of like the global knowledge pool like are related, right? It's like, it's not just about like, oh, I'm going to set this abstract thing where I want to like do new research that no one's ever done before. It's like that comes out kind of organically of your own like self-improvement process where it's like you want it like for me, it's like I want to make video games. And so like I need to have like NPCs move in this particular way. So like now I'm learning about pathfinding algorithms and like I implement one of them and then like, oh, I, like it's not performing enough so I implement this more sophisticated one and then like I find that like I'm interested in that part and that like I want to do more systems related to that and now I'm learning about union find and like now it's like that same like improving my own work like incrementally to do something better and like trying to broaden it and like reach out into new areas like leads me to learning about what other people have done before and then eventually at some point you hit like, oh, well no one's really try it this particular way before and that's the thing I, w- I know I want to do because of like my own taste or my own interact like my own interactions with this thing I just made like I now and so now that's how you get to the edge and then you have to like then you have to like be a little bit scientific about it and like like do your experiment with salad dressing like try three different <laughs> mustards or like you know you're like that's where like this you know the scientific quote-unquote like scientific method kind of comes into it it, bo- it kind of boils down to this idea that you know, if you're not learning while you're making something, then you're just kind of doing it wrong or you're not, or you're not really pushing yourself or there's not, maybe the final product isn't going to be as good if you're not somehow testing yourself or somehow trying to push what, what you're doing. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you like, so many of us as technologists have like learning disease where it's like, you can also do the opposite, (laughs) right? Where you like, oh, I want to learn about this. And so I will like try out this new programming language or this new thing like do a demo of it for its own sake or like run the examples and like if you do that you don't really like you you're learning in a very different way also you don't like you're both not gonna like internalize it and have that tool as look to hand 
but also like you're, it's like this you're getting novelty but you're not like relating it to like this like research direction you're you personally are in well thanks so much greg for coming on that was a really awesome conversation and i hope that you share the research you've been doing at mit and we get to see the final product yeah yeah thanks so much for having me on i've been i've been loving the show so it's really exciting for me to be here Awesome, Greg. Thanks so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we'll see you again soon. Voices.